Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Zipiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again this week. We hope that you're having a very blessed day. Tune in every week, and you can catch us right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. If you do miss an episode, go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. You can catch up on all of our great episodes. We have about a hundred of them. In today's episode, we're talking about the role that Christianity play in transforming the Western world and shaping the Western mind and its enduring impact on science, secularism, and even atheism. In our mailbag segment, we answer a question about building up the city of God. And of course, we want to leave you with some practical tips on how you can start to put your faith into action. In our bricklayer segment, there is a renewed effort to allow for groups to come in and teach in our schools. How can we speak out in response to this development in our public schools? And listeners, if you have an idea for the bricklayer segment, or maybe you just have a question about how to live out your faith in public life, send those questions and ideas our way shoot me an email, show at mncatholic.org, or find us on social media, Minnesota Catholic Conference, and just leave us a comment. We're now joined on the line from London, England, by author Tom Holland. Mr. Holland is a distinguished historian and radio broadcaster for the BBC, The Beeb. Today we're speaking with him about his book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, which comes out in paperback in the U.S. Uh, on March 23rd. Mr. Holland is also author, author of In the Shadow of the Sword, The Rise of Islam, and Rubicon, uh, in addition to a number of other works about ancient and early medieval history. Mr. Holland, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. Thanks very much for having me. What inspired you to write this really, really fascinating book, uh, Dominion? Uh, well, it's, it's got some very, very deep roots. Um, I, I was brought up uh, Anglican, um, and as a child I went to church and um, went to Sunday school and all that kind of thing. But the truth was that I was actually much more interested in um, ancient Greece and Rome. That's really what got my blood flowing. And so when I, um, uh, when I began, became a historian... That was very much my focus. First books were on um, the world of Julius Caesar, the world of Leonidas and the Spartans, that kind of stuff. Um, and the more I wrote it, the more I um, kind of tried to get inside the heads of these very ancient people. The, the, the stranger, the remoter, and to be honest, the more frightening they came to seem. And I found myself kind of haunted by the question, why are they so different? What was it that kind of changed? That What is the chasm that separates me and the world that I live in from the world, say, of Julius Caesar? And it's a bit like when you have a kind of itch on your back and you, you, know, you can't quite find it, and then you find it, the scratching is you know, so great. And basically, the answer I came to was that Christianity is what changes, that, that essentially the West is so utterly saturated in Christian assumptions and Christian values um, that it's almost impossible for us to escape them. Even if you're an atheist, even if you're the profounder skeptic, essentially we in the West are like goldfish, and the, the water that we swim in, are, those waters are Christian. 
that I think it comes out right away in the book, in the opening scene in the preface, you talk about the Roman practice of crucifixion. And oftentimes we think of the Romans as the, the civilized pagans, uh, the virtues, the architecture, the building, the roads, the commerce, uh, the empire, the Pax Romana. But uh, the reality is something far different. Absolutely. I think, I think you're right. I think, you know, people think of the Romans, they tend to think of kind of, you know, beautiful temples and so on. But I think also, I think that we have been, many of us, um, have been desensitized to what the cross actually represents. Um, for, you know, 2,000 years now, for Christians, it's been a symbol of, of, of hope and resurrection and life. But for the Romans, it was an emblem of their power and specifically of their right to torture to death those who they saw as inferiors. So, provincials, people who resisted Roman rule, but more particularly slaves. And so the idea that um, it's actually the slave who triumphs over the master, that it's the tortured person who triumphs over the torturer, this, by the standards of the world in which Jesus lived, is a, a kind of incalculably weird thing for people to have believed. Um, and actually, I... This was brought home to me by something that happened when I was kind of, I'd just begun writing Dominion, and I went to make a, do a documentary about um, the fate of the Yazidis, a religious minority in Iraq, at the time when the Islamic State was still very much in the field. And I went to a, a town that had been captured by the Islamic State, where many of the women had been um, rounded up and enslaved, and many of the men had been killed and uh, actually crucified. And to stand in a town where people had suffered that death and to know that the people who'd done it were about a mile away across kind of flat scrubland, and that for them, the cross did not have the meaning that it has for most people in the West. For the Islamic State, the cross had the, 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 the meaning that it had for the Romans. It was an emblem of their power, and it, it kind of opened up this abyss of terror for me. And so I came back from that, and I rewrote the opening of the book to try and, I, I guess, really kind of evoke for the reader the horror of crucifixion and the strangeness of the fact that the cross of all things should have become perhaps the most universally recognizable symbol that human culture has ever known. It's truly astounding to think about, and, and you've compelled us to, to reconsider sort of the strangeness of Christianity and the way in which it appeared in the Roman world. Uh, I want to di just dig into the subtitle, at least the one I've got, um, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. So I want to say this, go into this in two parts, and this is obviously a book-length discussion, uh, but, and we've only got a few minutes. But in a nutshell, how do you define the Christian Revolution? Well, I, 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 think, that, um, I, I think that it's a kind of depth charge beneath the fabric of the Roman world. And to begin with, People don't kind of, you know, people walking around Alexandria or Rome don't really notice what's happening. And then over the course of the centuries, you get these kind of ripple effects spreading out and spreading out and spreading out. And the first great revolution, of course, is um, the revolution that we would associate with Jesus himself, with Paul, with the, um, with the, the early church. Um, and that ends up transforming the Roman world and the post-Roman world completely. Um, the Roman world ends up becoming Christian. Amazing, amazing thing. But then um, what about the world? Well, I think that um, there's a particular quality about Western Christianity. So the, 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 the Christianity that emerges in the Western half of what had been the Roman Empire, which becomes um, 
the Roman Church, and then in turn the Protestant churches. And they enshrine at the heart of their understanding of Christianity the idea that, um, in a sense, the whole of society can be born again, that it can be brought to God, that it can be cleansed of, of sin and stain. And essentially, this is what motivates and powers the, um, the emergence of uh, medieval civilization in Europe. Um, people might often think of the Middle Ages as kind of backward or superstitious period. Absolutely the contrary. Me- medieval Europe is, is the West's first experience of a revolutionary state. It's all about wanting to bring people closer to God, to reform not just the individual, but the whole of society. And this has kind of incalculably revolutionary effects that I think we are so used to that we don't even recognize them as being revolutionary. And this in turn kind of sets up a model for really a a, a kind of revolutionary chain process. So I think that um, what we call the Protestant Reformation is another iteration of this. Um, the Enlightenment is. And I think that what, um, what America in particular is going through at the moment since the 60s, I think that's another iteration of it. I think that um, increasingly, just because something isn't overtly Christian, isn't doctrinally Christian, its, its impulses, its assumptions, its values remain deeply, deeply so. And so the paradox, say, of the culture wars in the United States at the moment is that it may seem to be, say, a war between I don't know, Christians and, and, and non-Christians. Um, but actually, I think that it's all pretty much a, a, a civil war within um, the fabric of Christian civilization. And, and essentially, that's the kind of story that I'm trying to trace right the way throughout time. It's a, it's, it's a story of Christianity as one overarching revolution, but within that, a series of kind of succession of revolutions that are kind of like, well, really, I guess, Western civilization is like San Francisco, built on the San Andreas Fault. You know that every so often there's going to be a great convulsion. And I think that we're living through one of those convulsions right now. Uh, That's incredibly well said. You talk about Christianity being uh, paradoxical in history. Is this the paradox you're talking about? I I think almost everything about Christianity is paradoxical. Of of course, you know, the the central doctrine is that that God becomes man, that... um, you know, that, that death is, is, is life. I mean, its, it's foundations are, are paradoxical. But I think the way that it's um, evolved and the, the kind of the impact that it's had on, on global history is also paradoxical. So, so uh, one obvious example is that um, Christianity enshrines the idea that, um, you know, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, that it's the... Uh, it's the weak, it's the, 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 the suffering, it's the slaves who, in a sense, are, are closer to God than, than the powerful. But this idea has become the most powerful in, in world history. More people are Christian um, than, than belong to any other way of kind of understanding what it is that humanity is doing on the face of this earth. And that gives it a kind of power. So the very powerlessness of Christianity has made it powerful. And that's absolutely kind of classic illustration of the paradoxes that run right the way through Christian history, in which I think Christians and non-Christians um, in America are wrestling with right now. Um, you know, the issue of, say, of privilege, you know, all these kind of things. Uh, the, very thing the very fact that people might have a problem with privilege is an entirely Christian 
Uh, the Romans had no problem with privilege at all. They thought it was great. Um, the fact that we do, it's, it's not at all a given. And I think that it absolutely derives from this kind of 2000 residue of Christian, Christian assumptions, Christian teachings, Christian doctrine. So even some of the most uh, anti-Christian polemicists are really using Christian, a Christian frame of reference to make the critique of Christianity and uh, the West on some level. Yes, I think that um, unless you look at figures like Friedrich Nietzsche, the great German philosopher who condemned Christianity as a slave religion, who despised the emphasis that it placed on on the weak and the suffering, I I think by and large, most people, even the most vehement atheists, when they condemn Christianity, they do it for deeply Christian reasons. You, you mentioned the way in which uh, his, history and Western history is really a series of convulsions and kind of intra-Christian civil wars, uh, the Protestant Reformation, the Enlightenment, but really operating within a Christian frame of reference, um, even concepts uh, like progress, science, human rights that are considered secular today yeah. are fundamentally Christian in origin. It, what, is the, what is the implication, though, from the standpoint of where we're living today, and you've alluded to this already, of separating those concepts from their original theological framework, whether that's the Protestant Reformation or um, the uh, uh, Marxism, you could say, is a sort of messianic yeah. eschatological vision, yeah. or even some of the pro- what goes under progressivism today. Uh, what what are the implications of of taking sort of the software and and not uh, and ignoring the hardware, or trying to operate the software? outside of the uh, Christian cultural framework? It seems that the results are often destructive. What's going on there? Essentially, um, you continue to be rooted in in Christian assumptions, but perhaps you're not anchored to them. And if you're not anchored to them, then you can start drifting off and perhaps taking on new new ways of expressing yourself. So I guess guess, um, in American terms, the, the most interesting contrast would be between the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s and Black Lives Matter um, at the moment. Because Black Lives Matter clearly is deeply rooted in the assumptions and the values and the ethics of the original civil rights movement, which was a deeply Christian movement. You know, Baptist preacher at its head, the Reverend Martin Luther King, and the language and the assumptions were absolutely rooted in the Bible. So the story of Exodus, obviously hugely significant. Um, the primal story of, of um, Christ conquering death, you know, it was a fundamental part of Martin Luther King's um, rhetoric and language. Today, the, the uh, arguments and the, um, uh, the, the rhetoric of Black Lives Matter has basically been divorced from Christianity, and indeed it's, it, in certain um, manifestations of it. Christianity is seen as a kind of emblem of everything that has to be rejected. But I think that there's a kind of tension there, because the, the, the as I say, the assumptions don't really make sense without that Christian idea that, um, you know, those who, who suffer should be raised up and comforted and given equality. And on the theme of equality, the idea is kind of rooted in the fundamentally the kind of idea that you get in Genesis, that all human beings are created equally in the image of God. And then it's refined by Paul in his letter to Galatians, where he said, you know, famously says that there is no Jew or Greek. And if there's no Jew or Greek, then presumably there's no black or white. But if you don't have the kind of theological underpinnings for that, if you just have 
the conclusions without the theology, then in a sense you need to construct a new theology to explain it. And I think that an awful lot, speaking as an outsider looking across the Atlantic, I think an awful lot of what's going on in uh, American social media and, and culture generally is a kind of an, an attempt to provide a justification for fundamentally Christian attitudes and values that are not Christian. And I think that that's imposing quite a strain. Fascinating. And, and as you mentioned, even the, the modern Black Lives Matter movement as an organization explicitly in its own documents rejects Martin Luther King as a straight cisgender male <laughs> who's no longer relevant. So I, I think you've kind of hit it on the head uh, with that piece. I'm, when I read your book, I'm, I think G.K. Chesterton and Paradox. I also think Hilaire Belloc, and maybe maybe you're not crazy about those analogies, but it seems that there's a, a Christopher Dawson uh, is another British writer who comes to mind. Did those thinkers at all uh, shape the way in which you constructed the book, or were they not points of reference for you? Yes, I, I, they um kind of interesting to me, because I would guess that um, for about 100 years, certainly here in England, uh, culture has been fundamentally secular. And so... Um, it's quite countercultural, paradoxically, <laughs> to, to press the case Indeed. for the, the, you know, the, the overwhelming significance of Christianity. And so they were influences on me. But actually, the Catholic writer who was the greatest, British Catholic writer, who was the greatest influence on me and who has a, a, a quite a significant role in the book, um, is Tolkien, who, of course, is the most read Catholic writer of the 20th century. And um, I... In, my, in, in the section that I have about um, the Nazis, about um, what, their, what the Nazis intended to do with Christianity, how they essentially, I mean, I think the Nazis are, um, the, Nazis are the only truly anti-Christian regime that, that the West has experienced um, since the time of the Roman Empire, because even the French revolutionaries, the Russian revolutionaries, although they targeted institutional Christianity, they didn't target the, the kind of, you know, some of the key moral assumptions of Christianity, the idea that the poor have value for, and the weak have value by virtue of being weak, um, or the idea that uh, there is a kind of universal brotherhood and sisterhood that all human beings can be joined in. You know, communism is, is essentially an attempt to bring the new Jerusalem down and plant it on the, on the fallen earth. But the Nazis did. The Nazis tried to... Um, you know, they absolutely believed that the weak should be crushed, and they absolutely didn't think that um, that Jews and Greeks were, you know, were, were, were all one. Um, and so, uh, what were their plans for the church? Well, their plans for the church essentially Himmler targeted for, for, for utter annihilation. Hitler wanted basically to reduce it to a kind of uh, a, a spectral slave structure. So, in the book, in in, in Dominion, I, I cast the Nazis' plans for for Christianity and compare it to Sauron and the command that he exercises over the ring race, the, the mortal men who he corrupts with the rings and turns into shadows who then serve his cause. And I think that that would have been the fate of the Christian church in Europe had the Nazis won. Well, that's uh, another reason, re uh, listeners, why you should read this book, the, uh, the image of Tolkien. And the Nazis are Nietzschean, and I think you pointed this out earlier, that Nietzsche... Yeah. Uh, in, in proclaiming the, the beyond good and evil and the role of the Ubermenschen, 
really goes beyond uh, Christianity and critiques it and, and, and is incisive in that critique in many ways. Uh, but that's what the Nazis embraced. I think that's an absolutely fascinating comparison. For those who's, uh, who primarily watch television and movies, uh, I, when I read this book, I think of uh, the difference between the Lord of the Rings, as you mentioned, but also something like Game of Thrones, uh, the two different worldviews by two British authors, one with the incarnation and one without it. What do you, what is, how do you, what do you think of that comparison? To be fair to George R. R. Martin, he's, he's actually American, so uh, I'm not going to claim him for Britain. Oh, sorry, that's uh, but my you're right that it, But you're right that to, I mean, he sets it in a kind of um, a medieval world, doesn't he? Well, yes, I, I, I think that... Um, it's, it's really significant that Tolkien was Christian because, um, you know, I, I, I cite him actually on almost the last page where I say that a myth can be true, and, and you know, that's what Tolkien believed. And I think that that's the power, that's why Lord of the Rings has been the best-selling novel of the 20th century, I think, is that it conveys for people who may not be doctrinally Christian something of the power and the beauty of the Christian story and the, the kind of the Christian way of understanding the cosmos, whereas Game of Thrones absolutely doesn't. Game of Thrones is a kind of much, you know, the world is, is much more cynical. It doesn't have that kind of mythic framework. Um, so, yes, I think, I think you're probably right. Well, it's, it's utterly brutal <laughs> but, in the sense that there is yes, no is forgiveness, redemption, yeah. cynicism reigns, um, yeah. killed or be killed. Um, it's it's yep. like Tolkien without the incarnation. And, and, some, and Martin, yes. who I mistakenly... Uh, d- characterizes British, my apologies, um, is sort of the anti-Tolkien in many ways, and so troubling that that is uh, such a popular narrative for our time. Uh, the book is Dominion. The author is Tom Holland. It comes out in paperback this week, uh, Mar- the week of March 23rd. Mr. Holland, uh, it's a fascinating read. I uh, can't recommend it enough to our listeners. Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Where can people learn go to learn more about you and your books? I have a Twitter account, uh, which is at Holland underscore Tom. And um, if you go there and look at my profile, there is a link to a website. And I can't actually remember what the name of what the address of the website is, but you will find it there. At Holland underscore Tom on Twitter. Tom Holland, yeah. the author of Dominion. Thanks for being with us on The Bridge Builder today. Thanks so much for having me. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in the mailbag? Yeah, so today's question actually kind of ties in well with that conversation we just had with Tom Holland. Jason, you recently gave a talk, and you had a question from someone in the audience about building up the city of God, and we know that's really no small task. The audience member wanted to know, practically speaking, what is something concrete that we can do to help build up Christ's kingdom here on earth? Well, I recently did a Bible study, uh, a Lenten reflection on uh, Wisdom Chapter 2, the Equality Act, uh, Jeremiah 29, and a number of other passages. I was grateful for that opportunity, and people were like, okay, great, what do we do now? We're supposed to build a civilization of love, but that seems like a real challenge. Um, And where do we start? And I think it's about relationships, that the kingdom of God is a civilization of love. 
And love is not just a sentiment, and I think that does tie in well with Tom Holland's book. Love is not a sentiment, sentiment, but a set of social practices, and those social practices are, in fact, transformative. So one of the ways that we can build that civilization of love is building up relationships and creating really an authentic society of relationships, all walking together toward a vision of the good. We start in the public arena with building relationships with our legislators and walking with them toward the good, sharing with them our perspective about what promotes human dignity and the common good. A great way to do that is to attend Catholics at the Capitol on April 15th. Uh, It's an opportunity for us to come together as a Catholic community to be informed, engaged, and inspired to transform our state. So we'll hear from uh, important speakers about key issues, but then you'll be equipped with the tools to speak with your legislators effectively about key questions serving life and human dignity. Now, this year, as part of sending you on mission at Catholics at the Capitol, we'll also be bringing Christ to the Capitol following the morning program at the Cathedral of St. Paul. We'll transition to the state capitol, where we'll have benediction and a time of prayer for our elected leaders. Because the Capitol is currently closed to the public, you'll get to meet with your legislators via Zoom on Friday, April 16th. So the event itself is April 15th, and then on Friday, April 16th, we will have the legislative visits. Make sure to get your tickets today for this amazing opportunity to be formed in the faith informed on the issues, and to transform our state by advocating for life and dignity. Be the Christian difference, be the Christian revolution in the world that is uh, described so well by Tom Holland's book, Dominion. This is a great opportunity for the whole family, children and students up to age 22 are free. Again, April 15th, get your tickets at catholicsatthecapital.org. Thanks, Jason. And listeners, you can actually attend in person or online if you So you can get tickets for either option, as Jason said, at catholicsatthecapital.org. Jason, what else do we have this week that listeners can take action on? Minnesota legislature is considering a bill that mandates sweeping new statewide comprehensive sex education in curriculums taught in our state's public schools. Uh, 85% of Catholic kids attend public schools, so this is a really important measure. House File 358 would allow schools to invite groups such as Planned Parenthood uh, and others that promote harmful ideologies about human sexuality that thwart, not promote, human flourishing. It would invite these groups into the classroom and basically subsidize uh, them instructing your students and your kids. Not only does it allow for these so-called community organizations such as Planned Parenthood to come into our schools, the bill specifically says the person does not need to be a licensed teacher or even employee of the school. Uh, we see a st- recent statistic that um, one in six uh, young people now is identifying as LGBT. That's utterly preposterous um, from the standpoint of would that have happened without the normalization of these attitudes and behaviors and ideologies in our public square? The answer, of course, is no. It was just even five years ago when we talked about uh, folks with same-sex attraction being 3 to 5% of the population. Tops, now it's young people as, as uh, early as one in six. There is a need to justify the legal revolution that took place with regard to marriage redefinition with the social revolution, and that starts with education. And they are, in fact, trying to infiltrate Uh, the public schools to normalize uh, modes of behavior, attitudes, and identities that do not promote human flourishing. This bill must, in fact, be opposed. This legislation usurps the rights of parents to teach their children right from wrong and to help cultivate a proper sexual identity. Under the guise of medicine and science, it is instead a values of curriculum that imposes regressive views about gender and sexuality, which will only lead to broken homes, broken dreams, 
and broken lies. We encourage you to contact your legislators and tell them to oppose the comprehensive sex ed bill that would allow groups such as Planned Parenthood to be teaching your kids. That's all the time we have for today. For everyone listening on our podcast apps, make sure to follow or subscribe so that you always know when a new episode comes out. Then leave us a five-star rating and click share so that more Catholics can begin to build a bridge between faith and public life. If you want to take action on bills like the Comprehensive Sex Ed Bill, go to our action center at mncatholic.org action um, or click on take action at mncatholic.org. Let us know what you thought of today's episode, share your ideas for the Bricklayer segment, or send us your questions for the mailbag. You can leave us a comment on the podcast episode or connect with us on social media. Thanks so much for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest. More of your comments and questions and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins of the Minnesota Catholic Conference and for Kit Sapiniak, thanks for listening. Have a great day.